0: The Commonwealth Club's annual gala and Distinguished Citizens Awards will celebrate four outstanding community advocates and humanitarians who stand shoulder to shoulder with those they serve. Join us on October 28th for an in-person and virtual event and support the club. Text CLUB2022 to the number 41444 so you can register and donate today. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome, everyone. So tonight what we're going to do is we have Steve Mochtiger in the Hotsfeld Quintet, and we are all set to enjoy something about Mozart. We're, first, we're going to learn about the quintet, and then we're going to enjoy the whole quintet straight through. So Steve Mochtiger, thank you very much for
2: bringing this to us. George got me into this about 13 years ago when he called me and told me about his Monday Night Philosophy series at the Commonwealth Club. He invited me to do a presentation and said there were only two conditions. The presentation must have a philosophical aspect and it must include a musical performance. So we immediately agreed on a topic. Can purely instrumental music express philosophical concepts without words? When the agreed-upon Monday night arrived my colleagues and I performed two movements for Mozart's clarinet quintet. The slow movement was especially affecting, but I had no way of connecting it to philosophy except for the intrinsic beauty of the music itself. Nevertheless, George invited me back for another try. And this time I decided to explore Mozart's famous string quintet in G minor. During my research, something caught my attention. A passage in the quintet, seemed almost exactly the same as an orchestral passage in Don Giovanni, the opera that Mozart completed just a few months later. In the first scene of the opera, Don Giovanni has just escaped from the bedroom of Donna Anna when he is confronted by her father, the commander of the local regiment. On the spot, the commendatory challenges him to a duel. Don Giovanni reluctantly agrees and promptly dispatches the old man with three strikes of his sword. The orchestra accompanies these three strikes with three of its own. Three upward leaps in the violins combined with three descending chromatic notes in the cellos and basses. We will now hear this passage, played by our first violinist, Monica Gruber, and our cellist, Luella Hasbun. As the commendatory dies, the violins and violas play a descending chromatic scale, This passage will be played by our second violinist, Emanuela Nikiforova, and my fellow violist, Jennifer Sills. The same musical sequence appears in the G minor string quintet. Toward the end of the first movement, we hear the same three strikes in the first violin and cello, as the ones that killed the commendatory. This passage is followed by the same descending chromatic scale as in the opera. The similarity between these two passages (laughs) seemed important for two reasons. First, the quintet seems to be depicting a violent attack that results in the death of the victim. Second, and more broadly, Mozart appears to be using instrumental music to tell a story. If the story contains a lesson or a message, that could be his way of expressing philosophy without words. I consulted the musicological literature to see what what I could learn about the passages in the quintet. The G minor quintet is one of Mozart's greatest masterpieces, and thousands of words have been written about it. In the scholarly literature, it is invariably described as tragic. Some call it a tragedy. So this is how some of the critics describe the tragedy of the quintet. By calling it a tragedy, the musicologists are implying that the quintet has a plot, but no one mentions the murder that occurs in Bar 234 of the first movement. So I turn to Mozart's correspondence, but his only reference to the quintet Was about how how hard it was to make money from it. (laughs) I did find one letter, though, in which he wrote that he could express his ideas through music. He wrote, I cannot write poetically. I am not a poet. I cannot arrange my words so artfully that they reflect shadow and light. I am not a painter. I cannot even express my convictions and thoughts through gestures and pantomimes. I am not a dancer but I can do it with the sounds of music. I am a musician. In another letter, he described how he could use an orchestral passage to stand stand for something on stage. He wrote now about Belmont's opera. This is about the um, abduction from the seraglio. Do you know how he expressed it? The loving, throbbing heart with two violins playing in octaves. The heaving breast is expressed by a crescendo. The whispering and the sighing is expressed by the first violins with mutes and one flute playing in unison. I also learned that at the time he composed the quintet, Mozart was obsessed with the subject of death, its purpose, its ultimate meaning, and how to cope with the reality of it. On June thirtieth, seventeen 1787, his friend and favorite violinist, August von Hatzfeld, had died unexpectedly of a pulmonary infection. Mozart was distraught and wrote two letters to his father about it. The first letter was lost, but the second letter, which he wrote after learning that his father was seriously ill, is one of the most famous letters Mozart ever wrote. He told his father, I never lie down at night without thinking that perhaps, young as I am, I will not live to see another day. In the most famous passage of the letter, he expressed the following philosophy about death. As death is the true and ultimate purpose of our life, I have become so familiar with this true and best friend of mankind that his image is no longer terrifying to me. Instead, it holds much that is soothing and consoling. And I thank my God that he has blessed me with the opportunity to learn to see it as the key to our true happiness. He explained these thoughts were occasioned by the untimely death of my dearest and best friend, von Hatzfeld. He had just turned 31, my age, but I do not grieve for him, only for myself and all those who knew him as well as I did. Mozart was not only obsessed with death when he wrote the quintet, but his career was at a crossroads. A few months earlier, he had finished a spectacular series of piano concertos that brought him fame and fortune in Vienna. But that success was now behind him, and he needed to find new ways to make ends meet. His new comic opera, The Marriage of Figaro, had found limited success in Vienna in 1786, compared with the wild acclaim it received in Prague, Early in 1787, frustrated with Vienna, Mozart decided to move to London. But his plans were dashed when his father refused to take care of his two young children. Faced with increasing financial pressures, along with intermittent health problems, he turned to writing small-scale works such as chamber music, songs, and solo piano pieces, while Don Giovanni loomed on the horizon. We can't know whether Mozart's circumstances influenced the mood of the quintet, or whether he deliberately infused it with the philosophy expressed to his father. But we can examine the music of the quintet and draw conclusions about the story it conveys and the philosophy it implies. That is what I propose to do now. My conclusion is that the critics who call the quintet a tragedy are only partly right. Only the first movement describes a tragedy. It tells the story of a hero who meets a catastrophic fate. The remaining three movements are the community's response to the tragedy of the hero. The quintet as a whole takes on the broad scope of a Homeric epic. Here are the heroes I imagine for the quintet. Achilles, the hero of the Iliad, and Odysseus, the hero of the Odyssey, also known as Ulysses to the Romans. The poetry of these epics will help me describe the story that Mozart tells through his music. The first movement is in sonata form, an ideal musical structure for telling a story. Its basic form tracks the journey of the the mythical hero depicted by Joseph Campbell in his book The Hero with a Thousand Faces. In theory, sonata form consists of three main sections. The exposition, which introduces usually two contrasting themes in different keys. The development section, which elaborates on these themes in different keys. And the recapitulation, which reconciles the two themes by playing them in the same key. And then there's a coda, which is optional, and that ends the movement. And there will be a very important coda in uh, the G minor quintet. In Joseph Campbell's version, the hero's journey is a test of courage and a quest for wisdom. We find these same themes in the Iliad and the Odyssey, which were being rediscovered and newly translated during Mozart's lifetime. We can also find these themes depicted in the quintet. The hero is introduced in the first few bars with what I will call theme one, or the hero theme. It has a restless energy, driven by eighth notes that pulsate constantly throughout the entire movement. Here is theme one. This theme consists of several smaller recurring units called motives. The first bar represents the hero. The four notes at the core of this motive are particularly important. Note the phrasing, three notes slurred, then one detached. The phrasing is slightly awkward for the player because the last note needs to cover the same amount of bow as the first three without sticking out. As a violin and viola player, Mozart knew about this problem and he didn't usually write a sequence of four eighth notes this way. Usually he marked it as two notes slurred, then two notes detached. His father even wrote about the challenge of bowing this phrase in his famous treatise on violin playing. One scholar has called this kind of three plus one phrase a limping figure and and suggested that it alludes to the initiation rituals of the Freemasons. During our performance of the first movement, you will hear this musical symbol of the hero 165 times. I counted them. The second bar is the same phrasing as the first. But instead of a rising triad, which can symbolize aspiration or yearning, the second bar is a descending chromatic line, which, as in Don Giovanni, can represent suffering and death. The third bar is a different phrase, pairs of slurs, which can represent sighing, as Mozart pointed out in the letter we saw earlier. Then in the fifth bar... The hero motive is a descending triad, suggesting dejection, followed by a diminished 7th arpeggio, which can represent warning or danger. The hero theme is then repeated by the three lower strings, and it's extended this time for an elaboration of the warning or danger motive, and with a quiet, slithering passage added that has more descending Chromatics. Then we come to theme two. As mentioned earlier, in sonata form, the second theme usually serves as a contrast to theme one and is therefore in a different key. If the movement is in a minor key, the second theme will typically be in the key of the third tone of the scale called the mediant. In Mozart's other works in G minor, the second theme is therefore in B flat major. But in this case, Mozart departs from the norm and begins theme two in the original or tonic key of G minor, which it occupies for 20 bars before finally moving on to the key of B-flat. Let's hear theme two. So why did Mozart depart from convention and start theme two in the same key as theme one? I have a theory that explains this decision from a narrative perspective, and it's based on a combination of three discoveries the texts of several important vocal works that were sung to the same theme, a famous passage in the Odyssey, and third, a letter Mozart wrote to his main creditor in which he described a morbid psychological tendency. The first two measures of theme two are the same, both harmonically and melodically. Each bar starts with a leap of a minor sixth, followed by a descent of a minor third down to the tonic. Let's hear these first two bars of theme two again. This is a melody associated with the idea of death as a refuge from the struggles of life. It's the same tune, also in G minor, that Mozart used in the Magic Flute when Pamina, believing she has been taken by Tamino, sings, If I cannot have your love, then I will find peace in death. Decades earlier, Johann Sebastian Bach used the same melody in three different cantatas for words that also express a longing for the consolation of death. Commentators have called the first two bars of theme two wistful and haunting. As in Mozart's famous letter to his father, death presents itself to the hero as a soothing and consoling friend, gently beckoning him to a place of eternal peace and bliss. A similar enticement occurs in the famous scene in the Odyssey when the sirens beckon the hero to stray from his journey home and come to their island to be with them. They sing, come Odysseus, draw up your ship with us now. Oh, stop here and listen. No sailor has ever rowed past this shore without hearing the honey-sweet voice from our lips. And all those who come here are thrilled with delight and go away, wiser men. The sirens promise Odysseus not only pleasure, but secret knowledge. We know all the sorrows suffered on the plain of Troy, they sing, and we know all that comes to pass on the bountiful earth. But Odysseus knows the sirens are lying, that he will not go away, a wiser man. For he has been warned by the goddess Circe that no one who comes to them escapes with his life. He instructs his sailors to tie him to the mast of their ship so he can hear the dangerous music without hearing its deadly call. The hero of the quintet receives the same kind of warning. It comes in the third bar of theme two as a leap of a minor ninth, a dissonant harmony that Mozart accents for emphasis. If the hero is tempted by the bewitching phrases of the first two bars, the grating dissonance of the third bar brings him back to his senses. Mozart knew all about the sirens of the Odyssey. In Act 4 of The Marriage of Figaro, the jealous protagonist declares that women can't be trusted, and to make his point, he calls them sirens that sing to make men drown. After the jarring gesture in the third bar, the violin finishes the phrase with a stepwise descent to the tonic. This five-note phrase will appear in various guises in each of the following movements. With its resolute march to a full cadence, it seems to close the door to any questions, sealing the hero's destiny. We will call it the fate motive. In 1788, Mozart wrote to his creditor and fellow Mason, Michael Puckberg, that his productivity has been hampered by a frequent lapse into what he calls black thoughts, which he must drive away forcibly. He seems to be saying that he recognizes the danger of viewing death as a way to escape from his financial pressures, which he had hoped would be alleviated by subscriptions to the quintets. The quintet treats the second theme the same way Mozart treats his black thoughts. Having been recognized as an intruder into the quintet's home key of G minor, theme two is driven away into B-flat major where it belongs. To celebrate the arrival of B-flat, The first violin launches into an exuberant display of fireworks, but the last two bars of the exposition bring the festivities to a halt. Mozart confronts the hero with three menacing gestures derived from the siren song. The double bar at the end of the exposition visually blocks the hero's path to the development section. The sign before the double bar is a fermata, a pause that gives the hero time to decide whether to proceed or go home. In the Iliad, Achilles describes the gravity of a, sil- of a similar moment. He says, My mother, Thetis, the sea goddess, she tells me that there are two ways that I might die. If I stay here at the battleground, I can never go home, but my glory will live forever. But if I return in my ships to my own dear country, my glory will die, but my life will be long and peaceful. Mozart was familiar with this dilemma of the tragic hero, as illustrated by a letter he wrote to his father in 1778. Wondering whether a family friend had been killed in battle, he wrote, I should be very sorry if it were true, although indeed I would much rather that he died such a glorious death than a shameful one in his own bed. Mozart wrote these words from Paris, where he had immersed himself in neoclassical tragedies and searched for a subject for his next opera. As it turned out, his next opera was Idomeneo, which was based on a legend about the warrior king Idomeneus, a hero from the Iliad, and a comrade of Achilles in the Siege of Troy. The hero of the quintet retreats to the beginning of the piece, but after repeating the exposition, he defies the three warning gestures and crosses the double bar, only to be confronted by three more menacing gestures, another fermata, and another double bar. He is being warned repeatedly about the danger ahead, and his courage is being tested, but he decides to push past the barriers and venture forth. The cello begins the development section in its lowest register with the hero motive, followed by a long, stepwise descent by the violins. These two bars are then repeated still lower. Like Odysseus, who visited Hades on his way home, the hero is descending into the underworld. After completing his descent, he announces his arrival stops and is confronted by the siren song which over the course of 19 bars grows into a full-throated forte for the first time after taking the full measure of the world of the dead the hero returns to the land of the living by tracking a pattern that outlines the fate motive repetition of theme one signifies the arrival of the recapitulation and the hero's return home. But he soon falls into a vortex, like the whirlpool of Charybdis that threatened to devour Odysseus during his journey. The reason this passage sounds like a vortex is that Mozart is taking the hero on a counterclockwise ride around the circle of fifths, from F to B-flat to E-flat to A-flat. And I'm going to join the players for this one. (music) Mozart has symbolically stopped the progress of time. This is a kind of immortality, but it's an unhappy one. The painful juxtaposition of the hero motive and the sighing motive could seemingly go on forever, but the hero is finally released from the vortex and pushed onward to meet his fate. Another another double bar represents the final barrier before the coda. After three more menacing gestures, the hero crosses it and meets six more menacing gestures, the last three are fatal, like the three strokes of Don Giovanni's sword. And we hear the same descending chromatic scales that mark the death of the commendatory. The hero is not heard from again until his memorial service in the third movement. The remainder of the first movement is dominated by the song of the sirens. But now, without any menacing gestures or sighs, death has triumphed. Here is how Homer describes the deaths of both Hector, the leader of the Trojans, and Achilles' friend Patroclus in the Iliad. He writes, And the soul, fluttering free from his limbs, goes down into death's house, mourning its destiny. The final bars of the first movement depict the departure of the hero's soul with the musical equivalent of Homer's poetry. The second movement is a minuet, a traditional courtly dance with three beats to a bar. It opens with a forceful statement of the fate motive, the five-note stepwise descent to a full cadence. The first violin meekly ventures a question, only to be cut off by an explosive 11-note diminished seventh chord, like a thunderbolt from Zeus, the king of the gods, will play the first strain of the minuet. The sound of the thunderbolt, the rhythm changes from triple to duple meter, implying the assertion of hierarchical authority onto human affairs. At the end of Don Giovanni, Mozart also launched a huge diminished seventh chord as a thunderbolt of divine intervention. Coming right after the tragedy of the first movement, the violin seems to be asking why the hero was fated to die, only to be admonished that such questions are not allowed. This interpretation is consistent with the philosophy Mozart expressed in 1778, when his, father became sick and died, when his mother became sick and died during their visit to Paris. In explaining her death to his father and to a family friend, Mozart said simply that the tragedy was God's will. In 1787, the same year as the Quintet, Immanuel Kant published the second edition of his Critique of Pure Reason, in which he argued that some of our most basic metaphysical questions can't be answered because they are beyond the realm of human understanding. Mozart seems to be depicting a similar view in the minuet. The minuet continues with descending chromatic scales, and it ends with the phrase of quiet resignation, played by the second violin in G minor. As in all minuet movements, the minuet section is followed by a contrasting section called the trio. Its opening phrase has received scholarly attention because it repeats the closing G minor phrase of the minuet, but now with the same phrase in G major. The effect is to transform the pessimistic end of the minuet into a hopeful ray of sunshine. Here is the phrase at the end of the minuet, followed by the phrase at the beginning of the trio. Mozart seems to be saying that a simple change in perspective can be transformational. It's when he told his father that he had learned to view death as a comforting friend instead of a terrifying foe. He then transforms the phrase again this time into a gorgeous duet played by the two violas in close harmony symbolizing the power of love. But the structure of the movement requires the return to the to the minuet with its terrifying thunderbolts and its pessimistic end ending in a state of despair. The third movement is the hero's memorial service. It's played with mutes and starts with one musicologist calls the hymn topic, choral texture, soft dynamics, duple rhythm and close voicing. We'll play the first 4 bars. <laughs> The remainder of the exposition of the movement proceeds like an ancient Greek funeral oration. It consists of two sections, the epinesis, which is the praise for the fallen hero, and the perinesis, which is the advice for the living. In the quintet, each of these sections begins with the version of the fate motive. In the epinesis, the motive is played three times, each initiated with a forceful accent, as if to recall the three strikes of the hero's violent death. So we'll play the beginning of the Epinesis. Did you notice the murmuring in the second viola? It's the hero theme, the same theme that we heard 165 times in the first movement but this time it's only a shadow of itself. Instead of ascending a fifth to make a triad as it did before, it lacks the strength to rise by more than a minor third. The hero now exists only as a spirit and as a memory. This pathetic reprise of the hero motive recalls the famous passage in the Odyssey when Odysseus visits the spirit of Achilles in Hades. With the help of a magic potion, Odysseus revives his former comrade, And tries to cheer him up. He tells him about the trials and tribulations of the living. And says, as for you, Achilles, no man ever will be more fortunate. Before, while you were alive, we honored you as an equal with the gods. And now again in this realm, you wield great power among the dead. Therefore, do not be grieved before you are dead, Achilles. But Achilles will have none of it. Illustrious Odysseus, he says, do not speak consolingly to me about death. I would rather be above the earth, a servant to another in the house of a landless man who had little substance than to rule among all the withered dead. The next section, the peronesis is more upbeat. The orator comforts the mourners with the fact that the hero has won honor and glory, and he urges them to prove worthy of his sacrifice. But the emotions the music creates are complex. The first violin now plays the fate motive in a major key. It phrases it with the sadness of the sighing motive, while the other strings accompany it with jaunty upbeats. This is the peronesis. The recapitulation repeats the hymn topic and the two parts of the funeral oration, But there is an agonizing extended transition between these two parts, as though the orator has trouble moving from his grief over the hero's death to the task of finding uplifting lessons for the living. We'll play this transitional passage for you. Four, bar, four bars are the coda, a benediction that comforts the mourners and sends them on their way. So we'll play the end of the third movement for you now. was unsure how to proceed after the third movement. Should he end the quintet in G minor or G major? His solution again recalls the funeral practices of the ancient Greeks who mourned their heroes in two ways. The public oration represented by the third movement was composed, delivered, and attended exclusively by men. It was followed by a ritual lamentation at the tomb, a private ceremony attended by the hero's next of kin particularly his widow or mother. Mozart invokes this kind of lamentation with an extraordinary introduction to the fourth movement of the quintet. Mozart tells us to remove our mutes. The lamentation will be an uninhibited display of grief. The tempo is marked adagio, slower than the previous movement, and the mode moves from E-flat major back to G minor, Mozart's favorite key for a tragic aria, by a female character. The triple meter is more personal than the four-beat rhythm of the funeral oration. The lamentation starts with throbbing eighth notes in the middle strings and pizzicatos in the cello, plucked like arrows of fate, followed by a reprise of the fate motive in the first violin. The cello echoes the violin, replicating the ritual call-and-response pattern that in ancient Greece was sung by the grieving widow or mother and her kinswomen, we'll play the first four bars of the Lamentation. The music crescendos to a climax as the violin tracks a descending chromatic scale. We'll play that part for you. After the fate motive is played as a series of sighs, as in the third movement, the texture gradually lightens as grief and sorrow are exhausted. The lamentation finally ends with the fate motive played in G major, a key associated with the joys of ordinary life. The remainder of the movement is a rondo in a lively triple-meter rhythm that starts in the middle of the bar. This genre of dance movement, of dance music, is called a canary On the dubious theory that it it originated in in the Canary Islands. A character in a Shakespeare play calls the Canary a dance of sprightly fire and motion. In a rondo, the main theme is interspersed with sections called episodes. The main theme of this rondo ends with wild acrobatics in the first violin that seem to disintegrate into breathless laughter. Here is the main theme of the rondo. This theme and the Rondo as a whole have been criticized by many Mozart scholars who have called the music too trivial to bear the weight of the tragedy and sorrow that come before it. Other critics have disagreed, calling the Rondo life-affirming, blissful, and a turn to hope. Once again, we find Mozart's decision ratified by a passage from Homer. In book 23 of the Iliad, Achilles has buried his friend Patroclus with great and solemn ceremony, and his comrades are about to leave the hallowed ground. But he calls them back and announces that there will be games and prizes in his friend's honor what follows is the first olympiad known as the funeral games for patroclus the festivities allow for a return appearance by the heroic warriors of the previous chapters but this time they fight compete cheat and laugh just like regular people in the same way the finale of the quintet reprises themes from the previous movements but slyly transforms them into parodies of their former selves. The most famous parody is in the third episode. This is an upbeat version of the siren song from Movement One. This episode also makes fun of the slithering chromatic passages from the first movement by accompanying them with what one scholar calls mock sobs in the second violin and viola. Other parodies are more subtle. The main theme of the opening rondo outlines an arpeggiated G major triad, a transformation of the hero theme, which was introduced in the first movement, an arpeggiated triad in G minor. The first episode ends with the parody of the fate motive, played by the violin. Is that right?
3: Let's end on the
2: the tonic. Oh, yeah. This phrase is also the subject of the development section. The second part of this episode is a reprise of the love motive from the trio of the minuet, which we will play starting at bar 67. Appropriately, the movement and the quintet itself end with another parody of The Fate Motive. Before we play the entire quintet and then open the floor to questions and discussion, let's review the work's overall narrative and offer some concluding observations. The first movement tells the story of of a hero's journey, which in this case is a composite of the two Homeric epics, the journey of Achilles into battle and the homeward journey of Odysseus after the Trojan War. The hero is, is, is exposed to the seductive but deadly call of the sirens, but he proceeds to the edge of his adventure before retreating when confronted by three menacing gestures. Upon his return, he is warned six times not to proceed, but he courageously crosses the barriers and ventures down into the underworld. When he returns to the world of the living, he falls into a vortex of doubt and suffering. As he spins around in the whirlpool, he is momentarily suspended in time, but is eventually released and pushed toward his destiny only to confront nine menacing thrusts. The last three are fatal, and his soul is released from his body. The second movement dares to ask questions about the meaning of the hero's tragedy, but divine thunderbolts shut down the inquiry and declare that this realm is beyond the bounds of human comprehension. A demonstration of the power of love and beauty is insufficient to turn the tide. The third movement memorializes the hero with a traditional funeral oration. When the orator recalls the hero's sacrifice, we hear a shadowy reprise of the hero theme. The remainder of the movement exhorts the mourners to derive comfort and inspiration from the hero's glorious example. The fourth movement follows the funeral arrangement with a private lamentation by his next of kin. It is followed by a riotous dance that brings back and satirizes the themes from the previous movements as though they were human characters. The work ends on a note of joy, laughter, and play. Let's conclude by turning to the question I started with and see what philosophical concepts can be inferred from the music of the quintet. First, the quintet seems obsessed with the concept of fate, what Mozart called God's will. Every movement dwells on the fate motive, and and the context suggests that it plays a key role in the tragedy of the hero and the reactions of his survivors. A key issue during the Enlightenment involved the tension between the notions of divine providence and human agency. Mozart in his life and letters seems to have derived comfort by giving top billing to the role of state. And the quintet seems to underscore and support this perspective. Second, the quintet tracks a transition that is the opposite of what Mozart described to his father about the change in his attitude toward death. Mozart told his father that death no longer terrifies him and that he now regards it as a friend. He appears to have gained this perspective from his experience as a Freemason and from a book by Moses Mendelssohn that he owned and probably read. But in the first movement of the quintet, the change in perspective moves in the opposite direction. First, the sirens beckon the hero with an enticing and seductive song, and then they are revealed as a dangerous menace. Death ultimately presents itself to the hero not as a gentle friend, but as an insidious and implacable foe. A third philosophical issue addressed by the quintet is the relative value of this life versus the next. This was a matter of contentious debate between philosophers of the Enlightenment and defenders of the church. The pathetic reappearance of the hero motive in the third movement seems to contradict Mozart's statement to his father that he views death as the key to happiness. The entire quintet seems to say that the hero's immortality rests not in the eternal bliss of his soul, but in the community's remembrance of his life through ceremony and song. Overall, the quintet encompasses the entire spectrum of human emotions, from terror to courage, from despair to hope and back again, from love and beauty to grief and lamentation, and ultimately to laughter, joy, and play. In this respect, the most revealing passage in Mozart's letters is his comment about his friend Hatzfeld when he said, I do not grieve for him, only for myself and all those who knew him as well as I did. Mozart's focus is on the living, and even today his music depicts and celebrates the fullness of human life, just like a Homeric epic, but without the need for words. We will now play the quintet, and we'll look forward to your questions and comments on the other side.
1: It's time for questions. So the first question is a little bit personal, but we're going to ask it to all five of you. Do any of you play an instrument which is older than you are?
0: (laughs) Um, Quite a bit older. Uh, 1848. 1848. I
1: I wasn't born then. (laughs) Do you want to tell us a little bit about your instrument?
0: Um, it was made in France in uh, Mirecourt, and it won some sort of prize, so it has some, uh, a label inside that talks about the exhibition when it won some prize for, for excellent make- making.
1: Anyone else that has a, an instrument that's older than they are? 1619. So I guess there's a follow-up question to this too, which is in, in, in uh, chamber music, there's usually a preference for instruments that are very old. Is there a reason for that? Is it, is it uh,
2: Other than Stradivarius, of course. It's, it's a mythology, George. Uh-huh. There, it's been tested over and over again, and no one can tell the difference. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, and here's some technical questions. What Kugel number is the G
2: quintet? It's called Kerschel. Kerschel, it's, okay. It's it's Kerschel number five sixteen, and here's the secret about Kerschel numbers: you can always tell how old Mozart was by the Kerschel number. If you divide by twenty five and add ten, <laughs> <laughs> try it. He was thirty one when he wrote five sixteen.
1: This is this is supposed to be about music, not about math, Stephen. Next question. What do you mean by chromatic scale?
2: Oh, sorry about that. Uh, (laughs) Chromatic scale. Okay, why don't you demonstrate?
3: A a
0: regular scale in major or minor goes in half and full steps. Uh And in a
1: chromatic scale,
2: you fill everything
1: with half steps.
0: So you can't really... uh,
1: Distributed to any um, key. All right. Um, in your research, were there any instances of analogies, the quintet and the Odyssey, and the references to Don Giovanni? I'll well, let you follow, play
2: with that one. Uh, I didn't find any anyone who uh, who compared the. Uh, the passages that I uh, mentioned at the very beginning, and I, I didn't find any any scholar who uh, decided that, it, that there was a murder involved and that it and tracked it to Don Giovanni. That's uh, something that I decided that Mozart was depicting, um, and when I discovered that, I got very excited. And, uh, spent an awful lot of time, uh, trying to see what everyone had said about it. And I found that they had written that it was tragic and, um, and it, people got very poetic. Uh, some, uh, several authors, uh, said that it, it compared it to the, um, the, uh, garden of Gethsemane, uh, and the, um, uh, the loneliness of Jesus, uh, during that night. And several people uh, thought that that was a good analogy um, i didn 't find anyone who um, wrote about the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, but when I decided that it was a story about a hero, at first, I read Joseph Campbell, and then I decided I would read um, the Iliad and the odyssey and, and George, you were the one who got me interested in the Iliad and the Odyssey if yep. uh, you remember Stephen Mitchell. Yes, One of your guests at the Commonwealth Club, and he read from his translation, and it was very moving. And he autographed my book, and I got very involved in the uh, poetry, and then I saw that it was a wonderful way of, at least I thought, was of expressing what was going on. Um, and that I just found so many different um, parallels between the story being told there and what Mozart was trying to... Um, expressed through music. And then I also found that during this exact period, uh, especially in Germany, um, th- there was a revival of interest in, in Greek um, culture. Uh, there were, uh, they, this was when they were first discovering some of the Greek ruins. Uh, there was an um, archaeologist named Winkelmann who um, became very famous. And, um, and at Mozart's... Um, and so there was, at the same time, a revival of classical tragedies uh, in, um, in the French theater. And uh, Mozart's librettist, uh, Lorenzo de Ponte, was uh, very taken with these um, uh, Greek analogies. And so I found that he quoted from the Odyssey, and he talked about the sirens. And uh, there were dozens and dozens of references to class- classical mythology in the Mozart operas. And so I, uh, I realized that Mozart was very familiar with this and may well have um, been inspired by some of the same poetry that I read tonight.
1: I'll uh, make a little comment there um, because uh, you, you mentioned the back and forth between our conversations that we met uh, in a legal meeting uh, years before that uh, Charlie and I met uh, working uh, at a law firm, and one wouldn't think that lawyers in their networks would end up creating more civiliz- civilization. <laughs> uh, but it happens over time, with some exceptions, right? Um, so, uh, another question: What is your favorite work by Mozart? Any besides uh, the string quintet, I think. the uh, G minor string quintet. <laughs> Here's a question. Does Mozart almost always follow very sad pieces with a merry, happy ending?
2: Well, there's a few pieces that he um, ended in the minor key. Uh, the G minor symphony, mm-hmm. uh, he uh, ended in G minor. Uh, the C minor uh, piano concerto, number 24, he ended in, um, in the minor key. Uh, this was a, a big decision. Um, Most of the the convention was to end on an upbeat uh, at the happy uh, ending, but um, he was willing to um, end in the the minor key um, when he uh, felt the need. All right. Um, If we knew nothing
1: about the G minor quintet, which nobody in the room can say anymore, (laughs) would we think it was a tragedy? You'd have to ask the audience. No. Okay. All right. So democracy rules again. We all, we all take a little different piece of this. Um, and now, history question. So, so uh, what's the story of how you came together? Who would like to tell the story?
2: Well, all right, um, can tell well. Luella and I met in the uh, Marin Symphony many, many years ago. And uh, we've been playing chamber music together uh, at the Commonwealth Club and uh, other places. Um, so Luella is the rock of the quartet, obviously. <laughs> and... Um, but I've known Jennifer even longer. Uh, we uh, met in Aspen as students um, lo- even a longer time ago. Uh, and, um, you know, Emanuela uh, also plays in the Marin Symphony. F- the four of us play in the Marin Symphony together, and uh, that's been a, a wonderful um, way of playing in orchestras together. You really get to know uh, the fellow musicians not so much the brass players <laughs> 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 and then we
1: uh, they stick to themselves, or you want to f-
2: explain that <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, but they, they in, the players really tend to um uh cluster in in little pods depending yeah. on the <laughs> section they're in um. But, um, we do have a, 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 cellist in the orchestra married to a clarinetist in the orchestra. So there is, there is that. Uh. <laughs> is that the idea of diversity or? Yeah, it's diversity. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, a related question. What visual cues do you use to
2: stay in sync when playing? It's mostly listening and rehearsing and uh, watching Monica.
1: <laughs> so um, Steve you, you mentioned at the beginning that you started on this quest 13 years ago and you have written a book about it
2: yes it's been rejected by five different public <laughs> oh sorry <laughs>
1: so, did, you, did you feel before you got into this that you would find, you, you mentioned, you, you, you exaggerated when you talked about that there was you didn't find any thoughts in the music at the, for the first lecture that you gave. But, you know, uh, did you find more and more as you went along that you could uncover more and have you applied it to other music or is it you mainly have focused on this
2: string quartet, quintet? I, I've enjoyed finding stories in music mm-hmm. and I will say that It's really frowned upon by musicologists, or it was for many years. Mm -hmm. Um, There was... There's this concept called absolute music, and there was a fight about it uh, in the um, mid-19th century. Mm -hmm. And um, Wagner was the head and Liszt were the proponents of what they called the new music. And they declared that... um, Absolute music, and that was a pejorative, really didn't mean anything other than the music itself. Um, and the music of the future was uh, the, the music that told the stories through the operas, and Liszt wrote various uh, pieces. and that, um, So there became a, di- a dichotomy between absolute music and what was called program music. So Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony is program music, he called it the Pastoral Symphony. He wrote little uh, mar- uh, directions and explanations. And everyone knows what, that, uh, what the uh, narrative of the Pastoral Symphony is. Mm. Um, but without a text, it's absolute music. And that was the um, the rule. There was kind of a truce between the followers of, um, of Brahms and uh, Beethoven. Um, on the one hand... Uh, who then adopted classical music uh, and turned it uh, from a pejorative into something that they were proud of. Mm. And so Brahms carried on that mantle. Wagner and Richard Strauss carried on the other. Um, and musicologists really didn't want to get into telling stories or finding stories. Mm. Uh, Schumann was one who liked to find stories in his music, and he wrote a lot of pieces that were uh, had characteristic narratives. Um, then... Uh, during the last quarter of the 20th century, people um, got more into it. They were uh, um, It was part of the whole movement toward uh, critical uh, literature and critical music, and people started uh, penetrating um, into what the music was really saying. There was a feminist uh, approach to it by a musicologist called uh, Susan McClary, who was very prominent and... There were, um, dozens and dozens of articles written about the narratology of music. Uh, and then it kind of got dropped more or less over the past 10 years. Um, but it, since you challenged me to find, uh, concepts in, uh, absolute music, I, uh, w- and when I discovered that, uh, this had a narrative and a story, mm-hmm. um, then I was, um, uh, became obsessed with it and read everything I could about it. Mm-hmm. And, um. Uh, found a lot of inspiration in the uh, epics of, of Homer well thank you very
1: much Steve and, and the hot folks that, that was wonderful thank you
0: you been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts Google Play and Stitcher if you like what you've heard please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org donate